It is good to be back with you this Lord's Day. As you're opening up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, I want to send greetings from Fairview Baptist Church where I had the privilege of preaching last week. For those of you who do do not know, in the last several months, um, while that church was um, seeking uh, a pastor to come in and help, uh, Dr. Stephen Yule accepted that call and uh, along with several families from Grace Community Church, our sending church, to really revitalize a church that um, there still were some, uh, a remnant hanging on there, but, but in need of, of a pastor and in need of, of help in the trenches. And so we're very thankful to be able to um, have a, an outpost in Glen Rose of the gospel being proclaimed clearly in uh, Granbury and here in Weatherford. So very thankful to be a part of uh, that fellowship last Lord's Day, get to see some old familiar faces and then meet some new. And so just wanted to send uh, their greetings to y'all. And we want to continue to pray for Fairview Baptist Church during this revitalization season that the Lord would do a mighty work. So we're continuing our series through the letter of Hebrews and find ourselves in the 10th chapter, looking today to finish out the chapter starting in verse 32 through verse 39. And so please follow along as I read from God's word. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Hear the word of the Lord. As we have had the the privilege and opportunity to work through this letter to the Hebrews, and in particular spend time in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, if you missed it, has been a verse that has brought... Uh, Much conviction to my life, time spent thinking and meditating upon it and and praying to the Lord that what we read in that verse would actually be a reality in our lives. For you had compassion on those in prison, and please hear this, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. How do you account for this type of response 
to the plundering of your personal property. These are the same people who, once becoming Christians, being enlightened, endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and their response was joyful acceptance. It's impossible to explain what happened in the hearts of these men and women apart from appealing to the sovereign work of the Lord upon them. Like it just does not, we do not have the categories according to the flesh to be able to understand and see how those who experience such trials of various kinds, in particular, the plundering, the reproach, all of the things that they endured for the name of Christ, to do so joyfully. And so this morning, I want us to look at what I've entitled a faithful endurance and realize that all of us in the Christian life need, we need help in living a life that would respond in such a way that we hear of these Hebrew Christians responding in the midst of not things going really well, but enduring very difficult circumstances in their lives. When we learn, I'm sorry, what we learn in this passage is that remembrance of our past provides a powerful incentive for continual boldness and loyalty to Christ in the present. And also the exhortation to steadfast endurance and faithfulness is also rooted not, not only looking in the past, but also focusing upon the future, what is promised to those in Christ. And so really the Christian life, in a lot of ways, is one that, that is kind of on a hinge, mentally thinking and stirring our hearts towards what has happened in the past and what is also uh, happening, Lord willing, in the future. And so it's, it's reflecting on the past and reflecting on what is to come. The Hebrew Jews, these Hebrew Christians, sorry, find themselves at a point in their pilgrimage where they, if you remember where we've been, they have been tempted in many ways to leave the way because of the difficulties that are being presented to them and tempted to go back to what they had as being part of, of Judaism. The trials of various kinds, the ongoing waves of difficulty crashing upon them seems to be creating cracks of doubt and whether being a Christ follower is truly worth it. Our author has spent some time specifically thinking about verse 26 of chapter 10, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Brothers and sisters, this temptation to go back is futile, and he helps them understand what you have in Christ is so much better than what you previously experienced in Judaism. But we all are tempted when life gets hard and all we see physically around us is, is difficulty and hardship to want a different way out, to, to some kind of escape, some release of the pressure. And so this is where Satan loves to 
it's different for, for each of us to kind of put on that particular bait of temptation that may be really something that you're prone to, 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 to long for, to be uh, stirred at, and he, he'll hook that, he'll put that bait on the hook, enticing each one of us in different ways when we experience hardships of this life to, to find a way out, to seek escape from the difficulties. These Christians had sacrificed so much. And what we see here is this is, this is the, the, the author writing to a group that experienced enlightenment, we'll talk about that, coming to faith in Christ, a season of a lot of difficulties that they persevered through, and now later in their Christian walk, you could think of this as kind of like second generation Christians after the apostles, they're now at a point where even, even after all that they've gone through, they, in a sense, have, have forgotten and are currently being tempted to, to, to let go, to, to say enough is enough and go, and go back, leave what they have. And the author, in all of this, like we need as we gather weekly on the Lord's Day, be reminded of our identity in Christ. Be reminded of all that the Father has accomplished through his Son, all that he has done, all that he is doing, and all that he will do. We, just like the original recipients, need that constant reminder, encouragement, prodding, rebuke, admonishment, and we see that coming out even in our passage today. He starts in verse 32, but recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, I want us to, to stop there, because in, in a way this reminds me of Revelation chapter 2, specifically where Jesus is addressing the churches, and in, in, in Revelations 2, 4, and 5, the church of Ephesus receives a word from Christ, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember your first love. And in a sense, the author of this letter to the Hebrews, in telling them in verse 32, recall the former days when after you were enlightened. Remember your first love. The, the, the enlightenment there. It really is very clear and true where once they were in darkness because of their sin, the great work of salvation where the Holy Spirit illumines the mind and the heart, the light bulb goes on, so to speak, because of the work of Christ applied by the Holy Spirit to a sinner's life. You were once in darkness and now you see the light. That enlightenment is what the author is saying. Remember, recall when, when the Lord grabbed hold of you and where once you did not have eyes to see, now you have eyes to see the kingdom of God, the glory of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came to seek and save the lost, you being one wretch that he redeemed by his blood. Remember, recall when you were enlightened. He is wanting them to see the difference before and after coming to faith in Christ. 
he describes this conversion with the lights going on. And really, at the time that this was taking place, there were Gnostic sects during this time that would be offering what they would call salvation by giving people special insight. Like, we're going to bring you over here and reveal something special to you, and that's kind of their idea of enlightenment. Very different with the work of the Holy Spirit, not revealing some new revelation, but what we read from Scripture, the word goes out, this external call goes out to everybody, but does everybody repent and believe upon Christ every time the word goes forth? No. The word goes out. It's the same word, but sometimes it falls on deaf ears, a hard heart, and others, the, the gospel goes out accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit and one who previously may have heard in one ear, out the other, wanted nothing to do with Christ, all of a sudden, this time, the word goes out, and not only is there the external call, but there's the internal call of the Holy Spirit, and illumination happens, enlightenment. But I want you to hear this. What is, what's not being said, what the Gnostics were saying, is we're going to give you this special knowledge, this special insight. The work of the Holy Spirit is not giving new revelation. Rather, the Holy Spirit allows sinners who are once in the dark, to hear for the first time, truly hear, their minds opened, their hearts that were hard softened, hear the same very words, the same truth that was always there by God's grace and his revelation to us. So hear 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, what Pastor Andrew uh, prayed for us in the pastoral prayer, that we would have boldness to go. When we go, when you begin to understand the operation of God in the work of us being faithful to open up our mouths and proclaim the gospel, it takes the weight of burden off of our shoulders, thinking that we have to say the exact right, right thing at the right time, in order for this person to be truly convinced and somehow you're carrying the weight of responsibility, our responsibility is to go and faithfully proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And for some of us, that may be as simple as just saying, God is holy, we are sinners, he has sent his son to die on the cross in order to save sinners like us. If you repent and believe upon Christ, you too can have your sins washed clean and the gift of eternal life. It can be more elaborate, but as simple as God's great love for us that he would send his son to die a death that we deserve to die in order that we would not have to receive the wrath of God but actually forgiveness and the acceptance of God because of the work of his son. Now, we open our mouths, but according to what we just read in 1 Corinthians, the reality is 
for those who have hardened hearts, that is going to seem like folly that the eternal Son of God would be born a babe and live a life for about 33 years and then die on the cross, a death that only criminals and the worst of the worst experience, and you're telling me on the third day the Father raised him from the dead? And now he's ascended at the right hand of the Father? And he's going to actually come back and judge the living and the dead? You're telling me all this is the gospel, the, the reality of, of what God has done in this creation that he has made, this great plan of redemption? For some, they're going to just laugh at you. You're saying the same thing, but for others, if God saves that person, if he has elected them unto salvation, when they hear those same very words, it's no longer folly, but this enlightenment by the Spirit to understand and to, to treasure that reality for their own, that he would die for me? That because he is resurrected and living right now, I too can experience resurrection unto life in a new heavens and a new earth forever and ever? That's the reality that's happening with true enlightenment. And he's saying, recall this, brothers and sisters. Remember what God has done in your life. The temptation, again, is for them to say, maybe Jesus isn't enough. And what I see with my eyes, this Judaism that's still happening, there's all the ceremonial sacrifices and the, the big glamour and the focus and the making much of, maybe that, that's better. And the author, by God's help, is helping them see Jesus is better. What you have, even in the midst of all the suffering, it is so much better. Endure, brothers and sisters. Remember, recall this enlightenment where once you were on a road to hell because of the work of Christ, you now experience life and life abundantly. For the Jews, the gospel, this Messiah that would die was, was offensive. A crucified Savior was especially detestable to the Jews. It truly was a stumbling block. And you've got to understand what we read in this passage. Recall what the Lord did in your life and all that happened after it. Brothers and sisters, you were saved and you went through some very difficult times because of your love for God and your love for one another. This is kind of the description that was going on, the reproach, the suffering. If a Jew confessed Christ, there were huge ramifications in the, in the realm of their family, in the realm of their work, where they lived. Everything was affected because of their confession, their profession of faith in Christ. And so just thinking for a moment about the family impact, we need to hear this while it was extremely applicable to them, it is for us as well. When you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many people struggle with this, and rightly so. It has a huge impact on your familial relationships, those who are related to you by blood. According to the world, these are the ones that we are 
closest to, our family, our, our bloodline. But this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, and we need, to, we need to hear this. Maybe some of us coming off of time spent with family just over the 4th of July and things maybe didn't go so well. Maybe there were some, some hot topic buttons that happened to erupt and you felt led to speak the truth in love and it still didn't go well. Hear what Jesus says. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? On earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What's being described here? Some have been enlightened within a family household. Others have not. The reality of the gospel is there is going to be division. There's going to be conflict if we are sold out for Christ and he is actually Lord over our lives, meaning we submit to his lordship. What we read in his scripture, we obey. Those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins are living not for the Lord, but for themselves. The reality, that's going to cause friction. It's going to be hard. If you have ever wondered, why do they talk so much here about the importance of being part of a local church, covenanting covenanting with one another in a local expression of the bride of Christ? This truly is, as Jesus would say, these are my brothers and sisters. While we, our hearts ache and we love those who are our bloodline, our family, The reality is, we can all testify to this, when you are interacting with brothers and sisters in Christ and there's a kindred spirit, there is peace and there is unity and there is joy to be in fellowship with one another. When you are living for the Lord and and those around you whom you love are not, there is going to be division and heartache and struggle. For the Hebrew Christians who came to faith in Christ, This was amplified tenfold as those Jews around them who once called them family disowned them. And so coming to faith meant you are losing a lot. Also in the realm of of finances, of employment, uh, we see this as we read about the Apostle Paul's ministry to the Gentiles and him longing to raise an offering to bring to the Jerusalem church, which was primarily made up of Hebrew Christians. Those who once belonged to Judaism came to faith in Christ. And you read, because of not only a famine in the land, but the reality that your vocation, your livelihood would be impacted by your confession in Christ, your profession to him as Lord. It impacted family life, it impacted your work life, and so Paul's raising funds to help, help the, 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 the Christians who are struggling persecution and hardship because of their faith. What we read in these verses that they're recalling their enlightenment, they're recalling all that they went through. The author is saying, you even showed compassion to those who were experiencing these hardships and even to those who were imprisoned. Now, a lot of times we're going, well, that... In our modern day, if we go and visit someone in prison, it may be a little awkward, but not a huge deal. 
you've got to understand that in that time, if someone was imprisoned because of their faith in Christ and you went to visit them, to minister to them, you were found condemned of the same crime. You, a lot of times, would be found guilty or brought in to, to being a, a complicit, so to speak, of that particular offense. It was, it was a huge step of sacrifice and obedience and love that would move someone from their self-protection towards actually engaging with those who were imprisoned for the gospel. And so when the light of God's grace shone into their hearts to give them the knowledge and love for the Lord Jesus Christ, among the many things that they experienced was a transformation from being selfish and self-protective to being loving and compassionate. Choosing to identify with others who are enduring reproach. I know that for some of us, there's a huge disconnect with like the, the kind of hardships that they were experiencing. But brothers and sisters, our society and culture is on a fast track trajectory where if it has not already landed in your plate, there will be many opportunities to actually identify with other believers who are experiencing persecution, reproach, and hardship may not be in prison just yet, but experiencing difficulties because of their faith in Christ where we have a decision to make, an opportunity. And sometimes I think as we're entering into this harder territory, many of us are suspicious of others who endure suffering or persecution for taking a stand for their faith, that, that maybe they didn't really have a biblical, a valid biblical reason for that stance to be that upfront or they were being a little fanatical even, or they were unnecessarily causing strife when we're actually called to peace. I know that these are thoughts that have swirled around in my head. And other questions that we may ask, do we expose ourselves to the same mistreatment that they've suffered? Let's not forget we have families too. What would become of our property our possessions, our jobs, our reputation if we took that step out to support them, to identify with them. And brothers and sisters, this is not me preaching to you. This is me preaching to myself. This passage in my life has brought indictment for me settling for the world's definition of discernment, common sense, and being responsible. I want us to be directed by God's word and actually read these examples of those who recall when they were once enlightened are so recklessly sold out in a good way for the Lord Jesus Christ that they boldly enter into situations because they know it is right and it actually is an expression of love for a dying world to know the truth regardless of what may come upon them hardships, reproach, the, the, the loss of property. What some might consider reckless and irresponsible behavior on the parts of Christians that you may see out there, the Bible here is calling this actually brothers and sisters loving each other. Brothers and sisters living a life for Christ. In verse 34, this is where I want us to kind of spend a little bit of time when they 
had their property plundered, they joyfully accepted it. Now, my default response, according to the flesh, would be to cry out, where is the justice? How could this possibly happen to me here during this time? All that I've been doing for you, God, living faithfully, and this is what I'm experiencing in return? Now, that, that's wrestling with the flesh. Some may experience hardship and, and have that kind of stiff upper, upper lip, and they're like, okay, I'm not going to say anything vile or mean. I'm just going to take it. Again, that, that's not what's happening here. They, they respond joyfully to the plundering of their property. This should remind us, if you have spent time in the Word, reading through uh, the Gospels and, and Acts, in Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles, they're proclaiming the gospel every chance that they get. And if you remember, the, the Jewish leaders, they arrest them, they tell them not to do this anymore, they beat them. In Acts 5.41, after they left the presence of the council, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Christ's namesake. I don't know if you've read those passages before and go, man, is that true for me? Would I be able to respond that way? And that is exactly what the Hebrew Christians receiving this letter are being reminded of. You experience the plundering of your property and your response was rejoicing that you were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. How is this possible? As we look and drill into verse 34, it's right there in the text. In the last part of the text, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This is the key that unlocks, if you're scratching your head going, how is it even possible for a Christian then and a Christian like me now to respond joyfully to experiencing this kind of hardship, this kind of suffering. You knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. A good question to ask, what is this better possession and an abiding one? I want to submit to you that it is not a thing, but rather a person. It is a person who provides a great salvation. We were told in Hebrews chapter 2, you may not remember, not to neglect this great salvation that is ours because of what Christ has accomplished. A great relationship of acceptance with God and fellowship with God and enjoyment of God forever. Notice the two adjectives there, better and abiding. How is it that you could Respond joyfully to the plundering, meaning you're losing things that you value because of these two adjectives. Better and abiding possession is what you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is better than anything this world can offer, and it lasts longer than anything this world can offer. We really see the same truth being told by the psalmist in Psalm 1611. 
Listen to how the psalmist describes how good it is to have fellowship with God. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This fullness of joy, the joy overflowing, doesn't come from obtaining a thing, but actually experiencing a relationship with a person. Enjoying God forever. So the fullness of joy, the joy overflowing, comes from knowing God and enjoying God. The whole thrust of this letter to the Hebrews has been this theme. Jesus is better. They can take everything that I have, and if I still have Christ, my King, I have everything. It reminds me of a little uh, poster plaque that we've had out in the hallway heading towards the fellowship hall for years now. I think last week it actually fell off the wall, and in the Lord's providence, I took it into my office, and I read it several times. Jim Elliott is the one quoting this meaningful quote. He was the missionary to Ecuador that was actually killed by the tribal people that he was going there to reach. This is what he says. I want you to hear it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And we see in his life, he lived that out. He is no fool who can give who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I think the author to the letter of the Hebrews is saying, recall, brothers and sisters, remember your enlightenment, all that you went through. There was a reason for that. It was this better and abiding possession, the Lord Jesus Christ. 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Our confidence, brothers and sisters, comes from Christ. What he did perfectly on the cross and at the resurrection, what he is doing now for us as our great high priest in heaven and what he will do for us at the second coming and for all eternity, we have this great confidence. Christ is the one who, and I want to take us through this letter to the Hebrews, working through some passages. He is the one who destroyed the power of death, Hebrews 2.15. Christ is the high priest who opens the way to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.15 and 16. Christ is the one who ever lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews 7.25. Christ is the mediator of a new and better covenant that ensures the forgiveness of our sins, the writing of the law of God upon our hearts, and knowing him, the presence of God in our midst forever and ever. That's in Hebrews chapter 8. Christ is the one whose blood cleanses our conscience, 9.14, and obtained an eternal redemption, also in chapter 9. Christ will come again a second time to save all who are eagerly waiting for him, 928. Christ will make all his enemies a footstool for his feet in chapter 10. And then lastly, Christ's death is the single sacrifice that perfects us for all time. There is deep confidence in our future when we spend time meditating on 
what we read in verses 34 and 35. This better possession and abiding one, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Deep confidence about your future frees you from the fear of, of uh, the fear and greed that ultimately will kill love for Christ and love for others. Our deep confidence, our dwelling on what Christ has done in the past and the future actually brings freedom from the enslavement of fear, the enslavement of greed that ultimately will, will kill or will smash our love for Christ and love for others. If you recall last month on Father's Day, we looked at Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, which says that Christians should not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but where they can consider each other and encourage each other and stir each other up for love and good works. And we need to be reminded, without this regular encouragement and stirring up, we are prone to wander. We drift towards apathy, comfort, and security. And I, I want you to connect those dots with what the author is writing specifically to these original recipients. If they are experiencing hardship and things are not going well, it's not comfortable, they don't feel safe, we are tempted in those moments to look for an out, to change our circumstances. And so, like I had mentioned earlier, Satan loves us right there where he can put that particular bait that tempts us on the hook and dangle it in front of us to somehow move us away from our sure and steady anchor. Forget, we are such forgetful people and we need to be reminded of this great, better and abiding possession that is found in Christ and Christ alone. And so, what then are the practical implications of this stirring up one another towards love and good deeds, love and good works in the face of trials of various kinds? I want to submit just two simple and great things that we see in the remainder of our passage. One is that we need to remind each other continually how terrible is the price of throwing away our confidence. It actually is loving for us to care for one another enough to remind each other of what it would look like if you decided to bow out. To say, I've had enough with Christianity, I'm looking for something else. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries we actually need to hear that from brothers and sisters. Do not throw away our confidence. And then secondly, that we must remind each other continually how great is the reward of cherishing the, cherishing, cherishing, sorry, the promises of God above earthly things. We need to remind each other of the great hope that we have in Christ, the great riches we have as co-heirs with Christ. Because we are tempted to despair when we see things around us getting difficult. Our family, our vocation, where we live, 
whatever it is that you're experiencing as those press in, that's when as the body of Christ, we need to lift each other up, point our gaze once again to the glorious truths of our identity in Christ, our hope in Christ, the promises that Christ has made to his people. There's a quotation here of Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And really, the author quotes this to kind of support, gird this reality. So in context, Habakkuk speaks of God's coming judgment on Judah for refusing to do the will of God. Habakkuk speaks of God's coming, which the author of Hebrews sees fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And I think as we think about why quoting that passage, why quote that passage here and now? Again, it it feeds into this reality. We need to be reminded of what's at stake if we say, I'm done here, I'm going back. I actually am now questioning whether or not Jesus is better. I'm going to go look for something else to satisfy my soul. We as believers need to actually love each other well in saying, brother and sister, this is big. This matters. You need to understand historically what has happened to people who have said, I'm done following the will of God. I'm going to do my own thing. There is actually judgment coming upon people who are living and relishing in that sin and rebellion from a holy and just God. It is real. It is a reality. And those warnings need to be heard by all of us. And so that that quotation is to stir up some warning. It's also to stir up the reality of what it means to be a Christian. We are those who live by faith. So what's really interesting is when you go back and read that Habakkuk original uh, passage and what the author of Hebrews does with a little bit of changing of the words, inspired by the Spirit of God, it actually helps us fully get a bigger grasp or understanding of what, what's really being said here. So the author of Hebrews, inspired by the Spirit of God, communicates that what, he, what we read in Habakkuk is one whose soul is puffed up is one who is moving away from God. So that the word usage in, in Habakkuk in the original is one whose soul is puffed up. Don't be like one's, one whose soul is puffed up. And really, the author of Hebrews uses the expression, one who shrinks back. Don't be like one who shrinks back. The righteous shall live by faith. And to help us understand what this means, we see what the opposite of trusting God looks like. It is one who is buying into kind of this false reality of self-sufficiency, self-reliance. Anybody who is puffed up thinks that they can do it in and of themselves. They're making much of them. The author of this letter to the Hebrews is saying that puffing up is actually the same thing as understanding that they're actually shrinking back. They may think they're puffed up in something special. They're actually shrinking back and the judgment of God is coming upon them. Now, the righteous shall live by faith, not self-reliant, but wholly dependent upon God. And that is the DNA of a believer, You're not depending upon your own good works, what you have accomplished, wholly dependent upon what Christ, our our better possession, our abiding possession, who and what he has done. 
then our righteousness is, is one that is not our own, but an imputed righteousness because of his perfect obedience. You're staking your claim on complete dependency, while those who think that they're puffed up are actually shrinking back and judgment is coming. Brothers and sisters, you are not those who are shrinking back. You live by faith. And we're going to launch into chapter 11, which is just unpacking living by faith, giving us many, many examples from Scripture of those who have actually walked this out, what it looks like, and with God's help, as we work through that chapter, our faith will be strengthened. And our life, our, 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 um, our call to live faithfully unto the Lord will be bolstered by being reminded and encouraged by saints who have gone before. I want to end with this. There's a portion in Acts chapter 14 where the Apostle Paul strengthens the souls of disciples. He encourages disciples who are pressing on in this pilgrimage. The original readers of the Hebrews needed this. We need this. And this is what he says. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14 Uh, verse 22. This is how he strengthens and encourages. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is not smooth sailing. It is not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You don't believe it enough and then you will receive it. That is not biblical faith. We will see that clearly as we work into chapter 11. But really, this is the Christian life. You will experience tribulations the whole way until God takes you home or Christ returns. Now, for some of us, you're going, that is not encouraging. But if you realize who it is that we are depending upon and who, is, who it is that is at work in every, every bit of those trials and circumstances, then things start to change your perception, your understanding of God's work of sanctification, his goodness towards you, his love towards you is not manifested always in just getting, giving you everything that you've ever wanted and not letting you experience hardships. No, no, no. He is actually loving you enough, and this is from Paul Tripp, to take you, to take us where we did not intend to go in order to accomplish things in our lives that we could never even imagine or consider would be possible. And that is actually strong encouragement when you think of this life of trials, this life of tribulation is what we must go through in order to enter the kingdom of God. The word tribulation, I did not know this until this last week. Uh, Tribulum, it comes from the Latin word tribulum, which was a tool used by the Romans. You can YouTube this. It's really interesting. Just a visual description. Think of an old wooden sled. I grew up in Minnesota. We used these all the time. It was fun. On the bottom, there's some sharp objects. It was kind of that same thing, a big wooden kind of sled-looking-like thing, instrument, with, with rocks or stones shoved into the bottom side. It was laid on to wheat as, as they brought in wheat to be processed in a big circle. And that tribulum would be pulled around and it would separate the wheat from the shaft. Okay, so think about this. If that's what's happening in this exercise of farming, 
And we get the word tribulation from that. And the Apostle Paul saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Light bulbs should be going off. God is doing a work that needs to be done in all of us. So we've been enlightened. That does not mean that we're perfect or that we've arrived far from it. We need that shaft to be pulled away, the, 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 the gold to be refined, so to speak. And God loves us enough to do that very thing. So if you're experiencing tribulations, instead of thinking, man, I've either royally messed up or God just doesn't love me, I pray that that paradigm is flipped on its head and you realize, oh, I'm experiencing tribulation. That equals God is actually not done with me. He loves me enough to keep, keep doing this process that is painful, removing the shaft from what needs to be removed so that I may walk in a manner that is pleasing unto him, look more like his son. Brothers and sisters, recall the former days when you were enlightened. Look back and rejoice. Remember your first love. And let us not ever forget to also look forward, reminding each other of this much more precious and abiding possession that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and be built up and be able to have faithful endurance even in the midst of our property being plundered and not just enduring it, but by God's grace, joyfully accepting it. That can only be possible by God's work in our lives. And what we read and what many of us have witnessed in others' lives and maybe even in your own, that with the help of the Holy Spirit, there is actually a way to be joyful in the midst of our trials of various kinds. May God be glorified in his people and may we rejoice when we experience these tribulations as we make our way to enter the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. Without it, we would be roaming aimlessly, depending upon the knowledge of people and society and culture, rather than being rooted and grounded on your glorious truths. Father, we who have experienced this enlightenment know that it is only by grace through faith. We are not smarter or better. We did not deserve it more than others we rejoice that you would see fit to save sinners like us. Where once we were in the darkness, now we are in the light. And we are children of the light. Father, for those this morning who are in the darkness still, lost, dead in their trespasses and sins, I pray that you would use the words proclaimed today to lift high your Son. Give them eyes to see his glory and his goodness. May he be our anchor, our hope, our better and abiding possession, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.